Good morning. Scripture for today. Hebrews 11.21 By trusting, Yaakov, when he was dying, blessed each of Yosef's sons, leaning on his walking stick as he bowed in prayer. So that's it. One verse. How about that? It's amazing even what one verse can do, right? They say, you know, usually in seminary they say you preach about two and a half hours per verse, so you're good. It was only one verse, so only a two and a half hour, two and a half hour message. So this is the fourth, fourth message. Uh, If you've been here for a few weeks, if you haven't been here, I will update you as to what's been going on. Um... Rabbi Chaim has been preaching out of the book of Hebrews. He started at the beginning. Um, in going through recently the, the different characters that are li- characters, the people, the historical characters that are listed in there, in Hebrews 11, in what is commonly referred to or known as the Hall of Fame of Faith. This is like Cooperstown, you know, of Bible folks, if, you're, if you know what I'm talking about. So the Hall of Fame of Faith. So we've, we've heard messages about Abel and Noah uh, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and we've heard a few things about, about their lives. We've kind of seen them in a little more detail, because these are just snapshots, if you've noticed. These are just snapshots in the book of Hebrews, um, but we've looked in a little more detail and kind of pulled out some things about what faith is all about, specifically uh, what faith is and what faith is not, and just as a matter of review, uh, Rabbi Chaim has spoke about, you know, faith is is definitely not something that is detached from facts. You know, so often we think about faith as, well, I can't, you know, we we see the facts and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to cross my fingers, cross my toes, and I'm going to have faith. I'm just going to hope. And and kind of that's the picture that often the caricature of uh, of what faith often uh, becomes. Um, But Heinz, you know, told us that, look, that's not what faith is. It's not, um, it's really not related to to, to things in that sense. And it's also not just, a mental agreement or a mental assent with the facts, you know, uh, meaning having nothing to do with action. Chaim made it very clear that, you know, faith is based on, on really knowing and understanding who God is, what he says, what he's about, and then taking action based on that. It's very clear that faith is not absent from action. Faith is not just agreement with the facts, but faith also... Uh, doesn't have nothing to do with the facts, if you know what I mean, the double negative. It has a lot to do with facts and, and action. And also we saw that, um, if you remember with the example of Cain and Abel, uh, it was, it was, it's definitely faith has to do with each one of us exercising and giving back out of what God's given us. If you remember when Chaim spoke about the, the offerings of Cain and the offering of Abel, that the issue was not that God had a problem um, with what Cain brought in terms of vegetables over meat and blood and that type of thing. It was a matter of giving what you've been given. And we're not asked, we're not expected to give out of what we don't have. And so because of that, the walk of faith and the experience of faith is, is very individualized. And the struggles and the, the challenges we come across and the ways in which we are asked to stretch in our faith um, are individual for, for every one of us. And so these are individual experiences that, that God uses and opportunities that we have to, uh, to strengthen our faith through these individualized tests and trials. Um, and so we've also seen, as we've looked in, 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 these, in these chapters of Hebrews, we've looked at um, 
what Chaim called the warts, if you remember. These are kind of the, the, the low lights as well, because Hebrews talks about the highlights for sure. But when we go back and we look at the, the details of these stories, we certainly want to not ignore <coughs> the fact that there are what I would call low lights, or Chaim called warts. Um, I think warts is much more graphic, isn't it? <laughs> They're low lights. Um, because it, this shows us that, that, as Chaim said, you know, God works things out despite us, right? And it also gives us this picture that, you know, it's not this unattainable, like he said, when you see a, a museum or a, a, you know, a hall of fame kind of thing, you walk through and think, wow, you know, that's completely detached from me because those are the epitome, the best of the best, and that's not me at all. But when we look at these, these low lights and these, these not-so-pretty things, we realize that God does uh, persevere with each one of us despite our own failures. So what was read today, that one verse... Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look, you can have it kind of your finger, a marker in Hebrews 11. But we're also going to go back a lot uh, earlier in the Bible as well. Excuse me. That one verse there gives Jacob that one verse, okay? There's a lot more written about Jacob in the Bible than that one verse. And it says here that Jacob, uh, what he did by faith was he blessed. He blessed by faith. And what exactly does that mean? You know, I think when we hear that, at least for me, I, I, I'm thinking, okay, is that, that's probably some kind of big fancy prayer, you know, you think about someone praying, and if you've ever been in a situation where you're asked to pray, maybe you break out in cold sweat, you think, well, I can't say some wonderful, marvelous words like that, and here is Jacob who blessed the sons of Joseph by faith, you know, what, what kind of words, they must have been amazing words that he prayed, you know, that must have been what this has to do with. So I want you to go back to Genesis. We're going to go back to Genesis 48. We're going to go a couple other places in Genesis as we, as we go through this message here. But Genesis 48, uh, verses 15 and 16 and verse 20 is basically the meat of the, of the, the blessing slash prayer that, uh, that's being referenced here. We think maybe it's being referenced here in Hebrews. We'll see. So Genesis 48, verses 15 through 16 and then verse 20. It says, He blessed Joseph and said, this is Jacob, He said, the God before whom my ancestors Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, here comes the blessing, bless the boys, and in them let my name be perpetuated in the name of my ancestors Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude on earth, on the earth. So he blessed them that day, saying, by Israel you will invoke blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So... What were the blessings again, for looking at what these blessings were? He said, bless the boys. Let them grow into a multitude on the earth. And by you, Israel will invoke blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, pretty heavy-duty words there, huh? Not meaning to be sarcastic. Um, I mean, in one hand, this was covenant language, okay? In, in, In terms of, may you be a multitude on the face of the earth. These are things we've heard back as early as Genesis 12, right? Uh, These are words that Abraham spoke, that were spoken to Abraham, that Abraham spoke, that Isaac spoke. What was so special about the, beyond beyond those words that we've heard before, um, the blessing was, bless the lads, bless the young boys. Pretty high tech there. Um, So why is this particularly faithful? Why is this particularly being highlighted as faithful in Hebrews? We don't see uh, this being said about Abraham and Isaac and other people who, who uttered those words other than the bless the boys part, um, or make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, 
What was so special about those words? And is that what's being really highlighted here? That blessing. I want to play a little name association with you. Um, We're talking about Jacob today. The message is entitled The Faith of Jacob. So we're we're looking at Jacob's life kind of in a bigger picture than just this one verse in Hebrews. What's typically, what's kind of the things that come to mind? Maybe the the words that come to mind when you you read about or hear Jacob spoken about. Anyone want to venture a a word? Deceiver? Anything else? Struggle, his struggle with God. And he won, okay. Deceiver, I think, um, is something I hear a lot. When I I was reading some different uh, commentaries this week and so forth about uh, Jacob and so forth, and I think those are the things that do often come to mind, among other things, is that he's a a heel grabber, a supplanter. How many of y'all used the word supplanter recently? (laughs) I took my my vegetables and I supplanted them into into the inside. Yeah, it's a really common word, but we hear that. He's a heel grabber, a supplanter, a trickster. A couple, couple of things that I read. I just jotted a few things down from, from some commentaries I read this week. Uh, it says, this one author says, Because of Jacob's grabbing his brother's heel, he received his name until his character was changed. He lived up to the role that his actions suggested. Okay, that's what one author wrote. Another author said, Jacob is not singled out in the Hebrew Bible for his faith. He is known as a trickster who can be tenacious in pursuit of God's blessing. So what about it? Was Jacob was a trickster until his character was changed? Is that what Jacob's all about? And when was it changed? Uh, we heard about this, the, the wrestling with God. Some of the authors say, you know, it was not until Jacob had the encounter with the Lord there and that his, his character was changed and turned around. But there's, that's problematic for a couple reasons. Because, uh, first of all, that episode, uh, sometimes, even after that episode, you see Jacob being referred to as Jacob, and his name was changed to Israel at that point, but you see him being referred to Jacob, and then Israel, and then Jacob, and then Israel, and people want to make, okay, in this case, they make a big deal, and they want to explain the, the theological significance of why it was Israel here, and then why it switched back to Jacob, and quite honestly, when you read it, I don't see that as a consistent pattern. You just see sometimes Jacob, sometimes Israel. So there wasn't some big struggling thing with God. Plus, that episode is often cited as another example of Jacob just grabbing, you know, after things. He's holding on to that angel of the Lord saying, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. So people point to that as an additional, you know, evidence of the fact that he is just this heel-grabbing supplanter um, and so forth. And, you know, quite honestly, we make a lot of that heel-grabbing episode. At least I think that's, that's the way I've heard it, you know. Truthfully, in the Bible, names are often given for people's um, their hope, their, their, the hope of their destiny and so forth, um, or just something, some of the events surrounding their birth. I mean, even back at the beginning of the Bible, Cain, uh, Eve says, I, I bore a child with the help of the Lord. That's the, the word Cain, has that idea of, of acquiring and so forth. Uh, all the sons of, of, Jake, of, uh, of, of Jacob, when you read, you know, it'll say, I named him this because of that. I named, uh, I'm naming this one Levi, Levi, so that my husband may be joined to me. That word, Lev, Levi, joined to me. All these kind of things. Um, so on the one hand, yes, names are that way in the Bible. And what does the Bible say about Jacob's naming? Well, if you flip back a little further, Genesis 25, 24 through 26, uh, we read about that. And it says that when her time to give birth was at hand, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy mantle. So they named him Esau. 
The word has the sound of the word that, that means hairy. Um, it says, afterward, his brother, uh, his brother came out with his hand gripping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Um, and that word, the, the, the name Jacob, you can look at the letters in there. Akev can mean heel. The verbal form has to do with grabbing, supplanting, and so forth. Others say there's other uh, etymology, other, other um, origins of that name that really don't mean heel grabber. So it's, it's questionable. Um, but have you ever held a newborn before? There was a newborn upstairs. I don't, did you put your finger in the newborn's hand today when you saw the newborn? I don't know. But you do that. I mean, they grab your finger. Uh, but you put your heel there. I mean, my nose has been grabbed a few times. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they grab it. And so personally, I think, you know, when I was in oh, elementary school, this is nothing recent, but, uh, you know, you, you say things like, what do you call a, you know, somebody with, a woman with one leg? Or, you know, Eileen, right? You know, that's your name. <laughs> the point is, it's a tasteless, silly joke. The point is, it's not that, that, that her destiny is to be, you know, one-legged, for example. It's the fact that it's a play on words, or it's something there. And it, I believe it's the same here with, with, uh, with Jacob. It's not so much uh, prophetic in terms of his character and what he is. It's descriptive. He came out holding his heel. Okay, and bear with me here for a moment, because I know that may bother some people. If you want to talk prophetic, I think the answer is here in the, in the scriptures as to, as to Jacob and so forth. And if you want to talk prophetic, um, look back at a couple of verses in Genesis 25, okay, starting in verse 22. It says that the children struggled within her, and she said, uh, if it is to be this way, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. This is before the heel-grabbing episode. Um, so as far as prophecy goes, I believe it was already uh, decided, kind of the, the picture of what's going on, that Jacob would be the son of promise or the one that would receive the blessing. It's not so much this, that I think, this picture we get of there was a plan, and it was going to be Esau, but no, Jacob supplanted his brother, and therefore now God had to switch things around and change the plan around. No, that, that, was, not the, that was not how it happened. Um, in fact, the only other person that we read that makes this connection, that makes this sort of accusation and says that Jacob is a supplanter and a trickster and so forth, is Esau. Now, we see that in Genesis 27, Esau, after, you know, this, this, after he does not get the blessing of, of the firstborn from his father, Esau himself, in Genesis 27, 36, says, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and look, now he has taken away my blessing. It was sort of an after-the-fact, you know, um, kind of thing. And beyond that, okay, because we'll get more to the life of Jacob. Not, I don't want to paint him as innocent poster child and no issues and so forth. There are some, some lowlights for sure. But again, what do the scriptures say about Jacob and his character? As we're talking about, I want to kind of establish his character here. Genesis 25, 27, okay? Genesis 25, 27 says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, living in tents. Um, that can be quiet man, plain man, peaceful man, even-tempered, mild. Anyone have any other words beyond those that I've read? Sneaky. What's that? Sneaky. Yours says sneaky? A nerd. Not that translation. Did someone's translation say sneaky? <laughs> if it does, we need, to th we need to have a Bible burning. That's terrible. <laughs> What's that? Kind of 
Yeah. Now, what is your translation, Sam? I'm wondering. Right there. He's a... It's 2527. Mild. Mild, mild, even-tempered. It says a, knowledge, knowledge, a man knowledgeable is always a In any event, the word there uh, means just about any of those things other than the nerdy or the trickster one. Um, it's, it's the Hebrew ishtam is what it is, a man of tom, not Tom, T-O-M, Tom, Tav, Mem, Ishtam. Now, an Ishtam is, is uh, when that word Tom, when it's speaking of things or kind of an, 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 uh, describing action and so forth, it has the idea of something that's finished or complete. Like when people cross over the Jordan River, once they were Tom, then such and such happened, it finished. Uh, when it talks about, we talked about a couple weeks ago, at Simchat Torah, uh, Psalm 19 says that the Torah is one of the things it said was Tom. You may remember it. I talked about uh, it's not like the iPad mini that used to not have the HD screen that now has the retina screen and it used to be it was incomplete and now it's complete. You know, No, the Torah is Tom. It's complete to begin with. It had the retina screen to begin with. That's that word. When it talks about somebody being Tom, it means this right here. It usually is coupled with the idea of being upright or blameless. Um, do you, know, do you know the only other character, the only other character where I find these, this word, Ishtam, this description of a man of Tomness, uh, you know the only other character in the Bible that's described as an Ishtam? I knew Michael would answer. Does anyone else know? Did you hear what he said? Job. Job, Job is described a job, you know, guy with the job, job, Job. Job was described as an Ishtam. Um, about seven times he's referenced that way, a blameless man, an upright man. So think about that. So in, in looking at the life of Jacob, again, am I implying that he had no issues? Um, not at all. Did he supplant somehow God's plan for all this? No. Did he steal his brother's birthright? I mean, you look at the text, he, he bought it. <laughs> I'm being very gracious with him right here. Believe me, I'm not trying to twist this one. He took advantage of him at a weak point. There's no question about it. He did purchase it, but we also see some very strong language about Esau's uh, disposition towards his, his right of the firstborn. And it's a very, a very uh, um, graphic word there that he despised. He had contempt for that. Um, so when we, but when we look, I want us to, not, to get the picture of, of Jacob and his life here. Again, he, he, uh, I see some low points in his life, absolutely. Um, I think one of the lowest points, quite honestly, is right after this, this episode, not, the, not the, the selling or purchasing the birthright from Esau, that Esau didn't sort of complain or try to get it back or do anything, but right after that, he lied to his father. And it was pretty significant. It wasn't like he just told a little white lie. I mean, he, he said, it's your son, you know, Esau, is it really my son Esau? He said, yes, it is. He lied twice. He said, how'd you get this food so quickly for me? He said, oh, the Lord brought it to me. He uses the sacred name of the Lord. I mean, it's, it, it's pretty bad. I mean, it's a, it's a definite low light. But again, we put all this emphasis on the heel grabbing and that, which is there. But then you look at the story after that, and you see more of this Ishtam uh, personality and character coming out. He's clearly a very passive person. I mean, his mother, you know, put him up to this to begin with, this, this trickery with his father. He didn't say, yeah, let's do it, and let me add to the plan. He said, no, what happens? What if I get caught? I don't think it's a good idea. But he did it. 
I can certainly relate with being passive. I've probably been accused of being passive before. Um, so he did it, and we see his life as he goes along. His father said, go find a wife with, uh, from your mother's uh, relatives, and he does that. Uh, um, he does that very um, obediently, I believe. But he also recognizes the Lord. He has that, that, that dream along the way, Jacob's ladder, right? We know the story of Jacob's ladder. We won't get into the story. But we see there that Jacob was clearly in touch with the Lord. At that point, was he a greedy person? Was he after gain? You know, when, when you read about the, uh, the, the dream he has, Jacob wakes up. This is in Genesis 28, 16 through 22. He wakes up from his sleep and he says, man, you know, the Lord was here. He was in this place, there's no question. And he basically calls out to God and he said, look, if you'll be with me, if God will be with me and he'll keep me in the way that I go and give me, the, he just says, give me bread to eat and clothes to wear and give me peace when I go back home, okay? He asks for God to be with him. He asks for God to keep and protect him, give him bread and shalom. I don't see that as a particularly greedy thing he was asking for. Um, and then again, He's a bit of a pushover. I mean, he goes to, to find his wife. He works for 14 years, right? We know the story. He gets the younger wife. He gets tricked himself, and then he gets, then he gets the, the older uh, daughter, I mean, the younger daughter. First he gets the older daughter, then the younger daughter. But then he's kind of a pushover, right? The one he loves says, sleep with my handmaid. Okay. You know, and he does that, and, <laughs> and then the, the son comes in with the, with the, with the, the, the fruit, the mandrakes, and she says, give me some of your mandrakes. Well, if I give you those, I want to sleep with him tonight. Okay. And so she goes to him and says, I bought you with my mandrakes. I get to sleep with you tonight. And what does he say? Okay. You know, so he's definitely very passive. I mean, there's, again, no question. I'm not trying to, 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 to paint him as something other than that. Um, he's definitely very passive, but he also is very much a man of faith. I want us to see this. Genesis 35, 2 through 15, tells the story of, of a rededication. He basically rededicates his whole family back to the Lord. He commands them. He says, put away your foreign idols. Uh, purify yourselves. Worship God. And we see that as Jacob journeyed, this wasn't anything fake. And obviously his life must have definitely had some evidence of God's hand upon him. It says that uh, all the cities around him, it says the terror as he journeyed, it says the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. This is Genesis 35, 5. And it says, they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So again, supplanter, trickster, characterized by that, I don't think so, you know? I could go on with other examples and other details about how Jacob consistently considered God and all he did. And, and I want to encourage, I'm not going to go through each story in, in a lot of detail, but I want to encourage you, if you've not read kind of Genesis 25, let's say, through the end of Genesis, I mean, it's, and even into a little bit in the beginning of, of Exodus, I mean, it, there's gripping stories in there. All kinds of studies in character, all kinds of studies in, in incredible decisions that had to be made. And I talked about one of the lowlights of Jacob, kind of the lying to his father, which I believe, you know, we don't hear that one as much as the tricking his brother and stealing the birthright, as if that was somehow not part of God's plan that he would be the, the favored one to begin with. But I think one of the most incredible highlights in his story um, is found in, in Genesis 43, 1 through 14. This is after he, uh, Jacob finds... He, he, he understands that Joseph, I'm sorry, that, uh, yeah, that Joseph is, actually, no, before he, he finds out that Joseph is alive, and he is, there's a famine in the land, and he has sent, his, the, the boys have gone, his sons have gone to get grain in Egypt, and they, uh, they end up talking about their father and all this, and anyways, Joseph, who they don't realize is Joseph, they just call him the man, there. The man asked us this. The man asked us that. The man wants to see our, our, uh, our youngest brother. The man 
is holding Simeon until we bring back our youngest brother. And, and, and uh, at that point, Jacob is just, you're not taking Benjamin back with you. Simeon's gone. He's just, a, you know, forget it. Simeon's gone. Joseph's gone. You're not taking Benjamin. But then it gets to a point where they absolutely just have to go back. And you put yourself in his shoes there. And I mean, Jacob, his back is just literally, he's against the wall. And he, what does he do? He gets some gifts together and he says, look, go back to the man, bring these things. But then he's very clear. He says, look, you know, he says, he prays that, that El Shaddai, he uses the word El Shaddai there, will show him favor with the man. His focus is ultimately on the Lord and not the man. Um, he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he may send back your brother and Benjamin. And that, that, that's not, imagine that, that, that's the decision. Some of us sometimes are forced with split-second decisions or we're, it seems like there's really no good way out and we've got to take a step of faith like that. But put yourself in a situation a little, even a little further to realize just the gravity and just the amount, amazing amount of faith he had there. Because it wasn't just that he made that decision. Because the boys didn't say, okay, we'll take Benjamin back and we'll keep you updated via text messaging and we'll just let you know what's going on so you're not worried and so forth. I mean, I get worried when my wife's not home and she's like 10 minutes late, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, you didn't show up and I'm assuming you're off a cliff somewhere, of course. Um, (laughs) But think about it. These guys went 200 miles on a journey. I don't know how long it took them. I mean, maybe it took them 10 days, I don't know, 15 days longer to get there than for all the stuff to transpire then to get back before they tell the story. I mean, is it a month if we're lucky? I mean, here, there, this is the kind of faith Jacob had and what he was going through at the time, um, not receiving any, any news, any emails, nothing like that. And again, that's my point in rehearsing that and, and drawing your attention to just that story is to bring attention to the fact that the high point of Jacob's faithfulness, I don't believe was this supposed instance that we hear about in Hebrews 11.21, when the writer says, by faith, this is what Jacob did. This is the thing he did by faith, um, that he blessed them. Because if we only see that as the instance of faith in Jacob's life, I think we don't take much away from it, and we get a very narrow and a very anemic, very skinny picture of faith and what constitutes as a great act of faith, and certainly Jacob's faith. And I believe that the text here in Hebrews if, if you've got your Bible there, go back to Hebrews again, Hebrews eleven twenty one. I believe that the, the way it's written here, and the way it's spelled out, it's done in such a way as to bring attention to that very fact, the fact that Jacob's shining moment was just not this moment where he blessed the boys, um, but that his life to the very end was characterized by faith. And the same faith that each one of us has, the same faith that uh, each one of us has access to. And what we're seeing in this, in this picture, this snapshot of Hebrews eleven twenty one, is really, uh, if you remember Chaim talked about faith being a muscle, and you've probably heard that before. He mentioned that it, it's a muscle in the sense that you need to stretch it. I believe you know, we can also look at it as a muscle in the sense that it needs to be exercised. And we all have muscles, right? I mean, I look at some people and I think, I don't have any muscles compared to that, that guy. You, know, you think, you realize, we all, but we all have muscles. The point is, we're looking at a picture of Jacob, an exercised faith, uh, a, a, a muscle-toned faith, a developed faith, if you will. Um, that's the picture we're seeing in Hebrews 11. And that's important. Why is that important? Well, I, um, I was thinking about this. You know, I've had several jobs throughout my life, and maybe you have too. Some of them I've been at for many years, you know, five years, ten years. 
And you know that feeling when you, when you leave a job, if you have, if it's been, you know, leaving not where, there, where something's in your back as you're leaving, but, you know, where you, where you move on. You move on to another job. Um, I don't know about you, but I, can, I vi- visually remember, even if when you're, when you're moving, let's say, from one place to another, but specifically with a job, you know, I mean, you're part of a company. They have, a, they have goals. They have, maybe they've even got vision statements. They've got values, and you're sort of part of that. You're wrapped up in that, and you're, you're an ambassador for that. Um, but when you walk out the door, like, that's it. Like, you're not part of that anymore. The strings are gone. There's a bit of a freeing feeling, you know. No more reports I have to write. I don't have to work next to Phil anymore, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> but, uh, you know, whatever it is, there's a bit of a freeing sense that you're just not part of that anymore, you know. Um, the last day you walk out, that's it. You're free. And not only that, that's kind of their attitude towards you as well. You know, I remember one place I was volunteering at, and there was a little card file with all the folks' names in there that the, the volunteer coordinator would call. And I, I said, well, I'm moving. I'm not going to do this anymore. I said, what happens next? And he said, well pulled my card out, and he wasn't being rude. This guy, the guy, I knew the guy for a couple years. He ripped it up, and he goes, that's kind of it, you know? No strings attached one way or the other, you know? But here's the thing. When I think about that, because I think we can, we can, we can relate to that in a sense, you know, we're not part of those, uh, that culture anymore. We're not part of those vision, that vision anymore, those values anymore. We don't have the, those certain reports to do or those deadlines to meet and so forth. But it's not so with, with the life if you're, if you're a believer. If you believe in the Lord and you have a life of faith, it's not, it's not a matter, uh, it doesn't work like that. Your assignment doesn't end with retirement or your assignment doesn't end when you're no longer part of an organization or a particular group or something. And as in the case of what we're looking at today, our assignment doesn't even end with death. I think that's what's being talked about here today. The three actions that are being described in Hebrews eleven twenty one. Kind of like a sandwich, you know. There's, there's three kind of actions going on. I want to look at here, and, and there's the, there's the, the top of the sandwich, the bottom, and then the middle part, right? And I think when I first started looking at this, and when I read this passage, um, I really was found myself focusing on that middle part, the blessing. What was it about the blessing that was done in faith? And I looked at all the details about the blessing. And if you want to, kind of go crazy in your mind a bit, read, not just. Uh, evangelical Christian authors, you start reading some rabbinic authors about the way the boys were positioned to his right, to his left, and how his hands went, and who actually was conceived first, not who was born first. They have theories on who was conceived first, and they explain why, and believe me, it's a bit, ooh. And, uh, you know, and he could have moved uh, the older brother to this side, but that would have been disgraceful, so he put his right hand here and put his left hand over, so he was showing him deference by having a higher hand. I mean, it gets crazy. So I'm looking into all of these details what is it about the blessing? What is it about the words? And I'm focused in on that middle part of the sandwich. Um, how, did Jake, you know, how, did he, how did he know who to bless first? And back up for a second. I mean, the fact is, he knew. It was prophesied to begin with. Jacob said, I know, my son, I know. He said it twice. He even referenced them in the order, the reverse order before the whole blessing came up. And what I ultimately realized was that the focus of Hebrews 11.21 was not on that blessing as much as it was as what surrounds that blessing. And let's look at it again. The three things that are being said here that were done in faith, by faith, with faith, however your, your Bible says that they're all the same thing. It says that when Jacob, when he was dying, and it's a word, it's, it's, he was in the process of dying. He knew he was dying, and he was dying. So when he was dying, he blessed and he worshipped. 
So while he was dying, he blessed and he worshiped. The two pieces have to do with Jacob being at the end of his life, yet still worshiping the Lord. I think about that for, for a moment as well, the, the picture that's going on there. Here's Jacob who, who knew the Abrahamic covenant. He had just recited it. But where was he? Was he in the promised land? At the end of his life, you're hoping everything would come together that was promised to him. He was not. He was in Egypt. Okay, nothing wrong with that. I know we have maybe someone here from Egypt. I don't want to say anything wrong with Egypt. But uh, in the sense is he wasn't where he knew he needed to be eventually. Everything did not look like the promises were coming and the blessings were coming. And it was, you know, it's really easy to be faithful when things sort of are all lined up the way you think they're going to be. He, he was on death's door. Um, he wasn't even sure if he was going to make this trip uh, to Egypt. He really was his wish, his desire. Once he found out Joseph was still alive, he says, man, I, I know I'm dying and I just, I hope, I desire, I wish, I really want to get back to Egypt. And he did to see his son. But there he was far from where he's supposed to be, knowing he's not going to make the trip back there, right? And he was there for 17 years. You ever been in a situation for 17 years before? I mean, that, that's a long time. You think, is this really going to change? I mean, it's been 17 years. Um, he was at the end of his life. He was in, in failing health. In other words, though, we see that the text says that he still hung on to the promise as he was dying and that he still worshiped the Lord at that point. Um, if you ever... I don't know anyone in here would argue that it's, it's good to eat well and exercise and that kind of thing. And many of us probably have, have done that a time or two in our lives. Maybe we have times in our lives where we're really doing good. I mean, you're hitting, you're, you're at the gym or you're doing the things you're supposed to do, eating well, and you have ups and downs in that cycle, right? And I've been, in there, I've been there before, and I don't know about you, but there, there are times when I'm, when I'm in that cycle, I realize, well, this is great, I'm having fun, I'm exercising, and, um, but I, I kind of get this scary feeling like, When's this going to end, really? I mean, I've got to do this forever. And that's the fact. You realize that's a bit, am I really going to be, you know, on this treadmill three years from now, <laughs> 10 years from now? You know, but the truth is, no, you, you know, it's not like things are going to get better if you don't exercise. And even if you do, they're probably not necessarily going to get better. And over time, as you train yourself physically with, with, your, your, you know, with food and exercise, those things change over time as we age, right? Um, those, you know, I, I remember... People at the YMCA back when I was in my 20s and I'd play basketball and I'd ask some guy my age now to play and they would say, oh, no, it's okay, that's a young man's game. And I'd say, oh, come on, let's go. You know what I say nowadays? Yeah, it's a young man's game, you know. <laughs> um, because things change over time. Likely, you know, your, 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 your weekend and all that kind of stuff and you had to change your, your regimen a bit, but it's something you've got to do forever, right? Um, when it comes to a life of faith, when we look at a life of faith, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same way in a sense in that just like our, our physical, you know, sometimes we have those good moments where we're really exercising and eating well and doing well, and then we dip. It's the same with our faith. It's up and down. Um, but unlike physical fitness, faith doesn't have to lose vigor and ability over time. I think that's our natural thought is that things, you know, change over time, and we're never going to be as active as we were when we were younger. We're never going to be as strong and vigor and fit uh, vigorous and fit as we were when we were younger. But in fact, in contrast, the life of faith is not like that. And we see it here in the story. And this is, again, what's being highlighted, that Jacob, at, as he was dying, still had this faith in the face of being in the place he wasn't supposed to be for 17 years, knowing he's not going to get back to the promised land. His faith and his vigor in that sense was as strong as it was ever, stronger. And for us, I believe, is that we, can, we need to realize that we also can have a life like that in the sense that 
at the end of our life and knowing it even as we go along um, that our faith can be as strong as ever. And hopefully we've seen through these events of Jacob's life that this reference in Hebrews 11, okay, as you read this and you read these stories, specifically this one, this little verse here, that this reference is, is not the shining moment of faith for Jacob. Okay, not something that he just did at the last minute, that he was this trickster and this, this supplanter all along, and boom, at the end of his life, he just, and he did a good thing, crossed his hands in the proper way and blessed, blessed these boys. But no, that, that his life was, was a cultivated life, a cultivated uh, through his time he spent with the Lord. A life of, of ups and downs, yes, a life of challenges, a life of times when things seemed desperate where his back was against the wall, and I think we can relate to that. But that there was a continuum all along, that he continued to work his faith in a sense, and he continued to trust in the Lord and build that faith uh, in, in him and his promises to the very end. And that's the reason, that's the reason that I believe Jacob is in this, this hall of fame of faith. And uh, that's the reason that I think we should study his example and seek to apply it ourselves uh, in our lives and to our relationship with God as well. So let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the, the preservation of these wonderful stories of faith, faith of ordinary people who chose to believe you who are faithful. We thank you, Lord, that we can look at these stories and see that our best investments in life are those where we invest our faith and our trust in you and your plans and in your sovereignty. And we ask, Lord, today that you would help us to develop our faith, to work our faith, to exercise our faith so that it continues to grow, even as our outer physical bodies would deteriorate, Lord, that our faith would continue to be as strong as ever. And we help, uh, just ask you to help us, Lord, to trust you more so that our lives can be an example and an inspiration to others who would place their trust in you as well. And we ask these things in Yeshua's name.